What we have here is a failure to communicate. I wish I had like some chew right now because I think that old line from um, Jackie Gleason. Actually, no, it was Cool Hand Luke. It was Cool Hand Luke. I'm sorry. It wasn't Jackie Gleason. It was the prison guard and Cool Hand Luke uh, could describe most of the interactions that we have throughout our day. From marketing emails, conversation with friends and family, if you're a public communicator, if you're a teacher, if you're a preacher, whatever you are, whoever you are, Jeff Bloomfield he thinks he can do something about it. He grew up in a blue-collar farming family. And he learned the art of storytelling from his grandfather. He is the first person to graduate from college for his family, and he has worked in the corporate America in the field of biotech and discovered the mostly untapped power of neuroscience. From there, he launched into a new mission, teaching others to be more impactful communicators through understanding the intersection of brain, biology, psychology, and physiology. He's the CEO of Brain Trust. It's an agency that helps some of the world's biggest companies, Johnson Johnson, John Deere, United Healthcare, just to name a few, leverage neuroscience to communicate more effectively. He's written a couple books on the po- subject. He's got a, cha- a podcast called Driving Change. He's known to be a good communicator. We'll see if he's a good communicator or not today on The Aggressive Life, the Jeff Bloomfield. Hey, hey, welcome to, thank you for having me on. This is amazing. So I got to find out if I can speak and talk and carry on sentences and prove that I'm a good communicator. Well, so far I'm not impressed. I'm not either. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, you said, uh, part of your story is your grandfather was a great storyteller. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my my grandfather, my papaw, so we're on the border of Kentucky here, so those who are familiar with the term papaw, when I go around and speak around the world, when I hear say the term papaw, most people have no idea what a papaw is. It's a grandfather from Kentucky or the South. Uh, he moved up and bought a family farm in Mansfield, Ohio, when my dad was just a little boy, and I was attached to his hip. He was my guy. He taught me how to drive when I was five, standing between his knees on our old tractor, and he used to just, he had this amazing ability to simplify things. He had an eighth grade education. And he had this this amazing ability to teach you things hmm. through both experiences, but also storytelling and using analogies and using stories. And he really never gave you answers. He just asked you questions until you could arrive at the right answer. And so I just grew up around this. My uncles, my my dad, my, my especially my, my papa, they just had a way about them. And papa was one of those guys at the old general store. He didn't say a whole lot. All the other old guys are standing around drinking their cups of coffee. But when papa would talk... Everybody else fell silent. Hmm. He just was that guy. So I kind of had that influence, not realizing what I was actually learning from a young age at what a great communicator looked like. Did they fall silent because he didn't speak very often? So when he did, they wanted to hear? Or was it just a, a weight to his countenance or both of the above? Yeah, and I, and I don't want to try to over-glamorize it now looking back on it yeah. so many years. But I remember as a kid, when he spoke, it was almost like this anticipation of what he was about to say. Not just that it had weight. Um, now that I look back on it, I know he, he always had something of value yeah. to add to the to the people in the room. And when he spoke, you could almost anticipate the people who knew him going, oh, this is going to be good. Well, that's a really, that's a really good point. Maybe that if we could get that today and nothing else, that'd be amazing. Like, here's an idea. Whenever you communicate, add value. What? Wow. <laughs> Mine... <laughs> Wow. Now, it sounds like basic, but it's not. We all know people who 
we thought were pretty interesting people until we started reading their, reading their Facebook posts and realized, gosh, would you just stop going off? And I, I'm, no, I'm sorry. You're not giving value to anybody. No one really cares what you say. You sound, you think you sound enlightened, but you're not adding value to anybody. You're not encouraging anybody. It's not, you're not raising the water level. You're just in the chorus of blah, 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 right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that, it's one of the challenges I have where I think about is, you know, as you lead an organization, like it or lump it, you have a power to your words where I can't say the things that somebody who's lower in the organization can say because it has more power and weight to it. I can say the same thing somebody lower in the organization can say, and yet it has more power and weight to it. And sometimes that's good, but it's always a thing in my mind of how am I adding value, blessing people who I'm in a meeting with? Do you think that's something we have to strategically think about or eventually does it become a habit? So it's a very good question. And I know we'll get into a little bit of this with the science and some of the research that we've been doing over the past couple of decades. But the reality is, is our default setting biologically as humans is self-preservation. So if you think about it, that's biologically your default setting. You can't help it. You're hardwired biologically. The brain will always scan its environment, and, and it's looking for threats. Mm. And yet we, you know, we don't live in the caves anymore. We're not leaving out to go hunt you know, an elk and uh, being chased down by a saber-toothed tiger. But our brain, at, the, at a very fundamental level, we call it the root brain, mm. that area of, our, of the amygdala where the fight or flight kicks in, it's still looking at our same environment, scanning for threats. So until we feel like we're in an environment that's safe, the brain doesn't activate the areas that's actually open to new ideas. So as a communicator, especially someone in leadership, you set the tone for the atmosphere in the room to make people feel safe. And if they feel like, from an instinctive standpoint, they feel safe, hmm. you can almost feel it in the environment. And so now creativity starts to abound. Innovation, ideas start to come. People aren't afraid of saying things that you might think are stupid because they know that it's just, we're just brainstorming here. And it's an environment that gets created with the right type of communication from a leader. But the opposite happens as well. If a leader creates the tension in that environment and the brain of the, of the employees or of the team or the family feels like there's a threat and when I say threat, I don't necessarily mean physical harm, right? It, it means more emotional and psychological than anything else in our yeah, world. Right. Then every, the opposite happens. Creativity shuts down. Ideas shut down. People shut down. And they fear for how that person is going to perceive them. How does a leader set the tone that tells everybody in the room that you're safe here? Vulnerability and transparency is hmm. huge. Wow. Now, Obviously, some of us as leaders, sometimes we're too vulnerable, um, but there's something there where people know that, hey, you know, Brian or Jeff, they're not going to always say it the right way. They're not going to always, it's not going to come out the way that maybe they intended to, but we know the heart of their transparency is one of caring for others, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And even though the days we're having a bad day, you've put enough deposits into that tank of transparency and authenticity and caring for others that even on the day when you come in and you spike cortisol levels and maybe there's a little bit of a higher threshold of stress, the, the team still feels they know your heart. So it's a, it's a constant – you're creating – a culture isn't created or broken in a day, mm. right? Yes, it's it's right, created over right. time by the leaders. So if someone struggles with the whole transparency vulnerability, just give us some layups. Like 
go into a meeting and say this, or these are the kind of things that people would feel safe if you said, what, what, what would those kind of things be? Yeah, it's, it's always fun for me when we work and coach with the coach leaders because most of us have grown up in a school of thought that leaders are supposed to show up with the answers, right? Mm-hmm. And if they look at all like they've ever failed, if they look at all like they don't know the answer, if they look at all like they've made a mistake, their self-preservation in their own brain tells them that people will not find them credible and they will not follow them. Well, the research and the studies show completely the opposite. When a leader walks into a room and he says, gang, you know what? I got to be honest with you, this morning I was driving down 71 and I'm not proud of this, but I totally, you know, I totally used the the wrong you're number one to somebody who cut me off or whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> the wrong you're number one. <laughs> if I just share something of, I, I don't know if I'm in the right headspace to start this meeting because I didn't have a great morning. I yelled at my kid coming out of the house. I shouldn't have. I had to call him and apologize. So I'm going to take a breath before we start this meeting and see how everybody's doing. Just something simple like that where you show a little bit of that human humanity, vulnerability right, and the humanity. Right. People are like, oh, he's totally he's, – he's, he's no different than us. He just has more responsibility around here. So I kind of feel empathy for him in the moment or her in the moment and it just changes the atmosphere. That's one example. So the neuroscience, tell us about your studies in neuroscience and just give us the background. It and communication, how does it fit together? How did that come into your world? So if you go back to the farm and you think about what I was around, I didn't know what I was around. I didn't understand it. And in junior high, roughly junior high, my my papa, um, I'll never forget it. It was February 2nd, 1982. I got off the school bus to head down his 50-yard long driveway to see him. And the ambulance followed me down the driveway. And they wouldn't let me in the house. They took him off in an ambulance. I didn't know it. His toe-headed little protege, he had stage 4 lung cancer. And they, he slipped into a coma, and it would be the last day that I'd ever get to see him. Mm. I was devastated because he was kind of my guy. Yeah. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, my dad was a Marine, Vietnam vet, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Not my guy growing up. So I lost my guy in a moment. Anyways, I knew his legacy. He just wanted me to, to, to go farther, right? He wanted to drop that ripple in the pond, the rock in the pond, to create that ripple and go to college. And so I knew that. And so it drove me to get good grades and go on to college. And I ended up in biotech where I helped commercialize a drug for lung cancer, which was pretty cool, right? Because I, I was so passionate about it. Obviously, I don't know there was such a thing. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of drugs for lung cancer now. Do they actually do anything? Well, though? unfortunately, there's not a cure for it, yeah. but they can extend life long enough to, for people to start to you know, enjoy things maybe they wouldn't have otherwise hmm. enjoyed. So I was passionate. In, our, in this case, back then, it was only buying people six months. But- I thought to myself, what would I have done with six more months with my papa? Hmm. And it was just drove me. I kept going up through the organization, and I always wanted to be on the commercial side because I felt like that was where you had the biggest impact with the drug. You could talk directly to the people who were giving it to the patients. And they trained us in one regard up to the level of a third-year oncology fellow. So I had to know all my anatomy and physiology, cell biology, cell proliferation, all the randomized, placebo-controlled, blah, 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 nobody cares. And they told us to go communicate that to the oncologist, naturally, right? Because they're logical, rational people that need to understand this information. Well, Papa was over here in my mind telling stories, mm. teaching, using metaphors, and, and teaching people, the leading them up to the answer as opposed to giving them all the data. So I always communicated opposite of how I was trained, and I was always super successful, and I never understood it, and my managers never understood it. And I kept getting promoted, and lo and behold, uh, they asked me to help build a team to launch a drug for brain cancer. 
And so at the time I thought, well, I've always been obsessed with communication. I've always loved to follow great communicators, watch them, observe them, try to figure out what the patterns and trends are that make someone a great communicator. Well, now all of a sudden I had access to functional MRI and EEG and these neurobiologists and these neuro researchers, and they were looking at it through the lens of the blood-brain barrier, and again, nobody cares. I asked this guy one time, hey, with all this technology, we can map the brain in real time based on how it's processing information on its environment, based on how it's being communicated with, right? And he's like, well, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I thought, well, 99.9% .9 of the world has to communicate for a living wouldn't it make sense if we could actually start to use some of this technology to find out are there consistencies in where the brain processes information in order to build trust, in order to create some urgency to be willing to change, in order to identify change resistance, and lo and behold, you could. And so regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of culture of origin, we were starting to recognize there's this kind of three-phased approach to how the brain can processes information. The biology or structurally, psychology and physiology. And when you marry those together, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, you don't have to be a neuroscientist, you don't have to be a behavioral psychologist. We can simplify it in a way that allows everyday, you know, Janes and Joes to go, oh, that's why somebody receives that message well when I speak about this. But over here, if I say that, it doesn't work. That's why my kids respond favorably this way, but not that way. So that was kind of the impetus for me to go, okay, so about a decade or plus, I decided to leave industry and start Brain Trust with that as my intent was to go out and really help people communicate more effectively using science as the, the comparator. So they had something that was tangible. They could go, oh, because people don't want to change, yeah. even if they have a good reason. So I was like, we got to give them a scientific reason to change, but so do it simply. So you're saying as you're making your pitch on the oncologist – the data wasn't what was a good communicator would do to close a sale. You're saying there was other things that you would have to say or. And again, I, did, I didn't know it. I was doing it intuitively, not oh, okay. intentionally. So I wasn't doing consistently. What I found was, guess what? Hey, they knew the data. They're oncologists for crying out loud. Like yeah. they, they'd been to the meetings. They'd seen the paper. They've read the studies. They understood it. What I found was, is teaching the emotional connection to the results the patients would get in their life's experiences of this drug, and then working backwards to the data that supported the decision was a, a much faster way for them to recognize it. Now, all my peers thought, well, these are highly educated oncologists. They just want the facts. But they know the facts. I, I used to beat myself up. Does about, anybody really just want the facts? I mean, does those people even exist anymore? So you can break the brain into two networks, your analytical network and your emotional network. And the analytical network does everything from evaluation, comparison, analysis. It's your computer, right? It's your high processing. It's your neocortex. The emotional network, your limbic system, the root brain, the things that we talked about before, that's that area of your brain that brings meaning and emotion and trust and all the things that matter. We used to think that you had an analytical person, you needed to communicate analytical information to them in order for them to make a decision. And this person over here is not so analytical, so we need to give them something a little, a little more emotional. It turns out now every human being makes decisions the same way. It's emotional first, so yes. it activates emotionally, and then we look to validate and justify with facts and figures. Buy on emotion, justify with facts. It's not even buy, it's decide. Hmm. Oh. So it's every right. decision you make, right. how you form your beliefs, everything that you 
ultimately decide, it always has a spark and a root of emotion. Hmm. And then we start to look for the information. Spark, the beginning. The beginning is Activation right Activation has to be emotional. So what does that mean for us as communicators? Are we just slaves to people's feelings and all we can do is play into their feelings? No, no, no. It means, uh, and what we teach a lot is, we call it the emotion coaster. Uh, because really great communicators, what I've found is they do a lot of these behaviors intuitively, but not intentionally. So therefore, like I said, not consistently. So, when, you know, everyone said like, well, you know, storytelling. Whenever I ask someone who's a storytelling expert, how does storytelling work in the brain? Why does it work? Well, people just love stories. It's easier to understand. Well, how? Tell me from a neuroscientific standpoint how storytelling, why that's a great way to communicate. Well, as it turns out, when you tell a great story and you use visual communication, you bypass the analytical network. You activate the internal visualization mechanism of the brain right by where your long-term memories are stored. So it allows you to pull your own information and experiences and attach to the story right next to where the seat of emotion is. Hmm. So take those three things and think about, well, that's why stories work. Yeah, that's why they work. So when you can create that emotional connection with people, you're bypassing the skeptical, judgmental, analytical network. And we get that emotional connection through telling stories because stories are always emotion by nature. Absolutely. If they're told correctly. The brain, it seems like we're learning more and more about the brain, or at least I'm hearing more and more studies that I remember hearing in decades past. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. What's causing this like eruption in new data, new findings? Yeah, I started, I started you, it. It's all you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. You and Ben Carson. Yeah. Yeah. I started that a long time ago. Um, no, I think what's happened is, uh, you know, the, the human mind has always been fascinated with these areas that we don't understand. And I think there's always been a pursuit to understand it. Well, technology and science eventually starts to catch up, right? Archaeology. Like we used to think we knew things that happened in the Old Testament. Well, now as science and technology have advanced, we've been able to prove a lot of the things that happened in the Old Testament yep. through science. Yep. I think the same thing is happening with the brain. So we didn't used to be able to peer into the brain with technology like we can now. So we've been able to identify a lot more about how the brain processes through science, through technology. And so now we're able to start to see the implications of that in everyday life. And I think that's why we're starting to see a lot more of a groundswell towards it. What is the, I mean, think about all the organs in our body. To me, the most fascinating and still untapped knowledge base of, of, of information we have is on the brain. Yet it's probably the most important organ that we have. Now, we could get into the heart-soul debate, mind debate on this, but that's why I think there's been such a groundswell, because it's the seed of everything that drives behavior. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, in, in some of his books and some of his studies, talks about the big differences in communication between the East and the West. What are those? And, and, and are there differences inside of, inside of the United States or is inside the United States, is everybody pretty much receive information the same way. Yeah, I think, you know, his his premise was around, you know, who's responsible for the understanding. And in, you know, in the in, in the West culture, it's the you know, the communicator communicates, the listener uh, receives it, it's up to the communicator to make the point made. Hmm, right. And I think in the East it's well the it's a very authoritarian communication style top down where <clears throat> of course the person who's saying it knows what they're doing, so if they didn't understand it it was the listener's problem. Um, I, I don't. I think it's probably a combination, and I think I always 
and maybe it's because I'm, I'm biased towards being in America and I have my own biases around that, but it's just like at an organization. I know exactly what kind of leadership they have. And the same thing holds true. When I go into an organization and it's just toxic and people are not engaged and struggling, I know exactly what kind of leadership they have. Now, extrapolate that on the communication. So if I'm communicating with you and I'm supposed to be the one who's instructing or who's teaching or who, and you don't understand what I'm saying, is that your fault? I don't think so. Like, I think it's up to me to figure out a way to communicate in a way that you understand. What's that mean? It means I have to know my audience. I have to know your educational level. I have to know your experiences. I have to know your background. And I have to know your willingness to learn. And if I have those things, I can communicate to you in a way where you're going to go, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. If I communicate the way I want to speak or I want to talk or I want to type and you don't have any connection with that and you don't understand what I'm saying, well, I can't get upset, but we do. Are you totally fixated on observing, studying communication all the time in every setting? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And uh, lately I'm on this, I'm on this, this kick where if you think about why people communicate the way they communicate in, in all areas of life, and I'm not going to go, we're not going to go nerd city here. I'm just going to try to, si- to <clears throat> simplify this a little bit, but every thought that a human has, a neuron fires, an electrical impulse, and that neuron signals another neuron, and that thought is connected between neurons. If I don't think, okay, you got a, you've got a blue-gray shirt on. I just made that thought, fired that, ele- yeah, fired that neuron. If I don't think about the meaning of that blue-gray shirt ever again, and I leave out of here, within 24 hours, my glial cells will come in like street sweepers, and they'll clean that connection up to make room for more. Mm. Now, if I continually fire that neuron— Fire that neuron. Fire that neuron. Ooh, I like that shirt. Oh, wait a minute. I would look so much better in that shirt. Ooh, I wonder how much he paid. And I keep firing that neuron. The pathway gets stronger and stronger and deeper until I do something about it. I'm going to go buy that shirt. So now think about that in terms of behaviors, beliefs, behaviors. The more that neurons fire together, the more they wire together. And the more times you fire them and wire them, the more habitual that becomes. And there's been a lot of movement now in tiny habits and, and habits and atomic habits and all of that. And I love all that stuff. But from a scientific standpoint, think about it through communication. Yeah. Why do you communicate the way you communicate? It's a series of behaviors that you've demonstrated and you do it because your neurons have created a neural network that say, this is the Brian Tome communication philosophy, your belief right. in communication. Well, how do you know it's the right way to do it? I think it's fascinating that we have these phrases that were scientifically true phrases even before we knew it, like a rut in your thinking. That's what we were describing here, right? Those synaptic connections, neural pathways, there's just a rut. Or or my train of thought, you know, you're just totally focused and you can't jump off the, you can't jump off it. When I'm on a, uh, on a motorcycle trip, um, there's in, invariably, you'll be trying to solve a problem like, I don't know, I've got a, a broken rack and I got to get this thing reattached to carry my luggage or something like that. And you'll think there's a specific way to do it. And once you think there's that way, all you can think about is how to do that way. And then somebody comes in who's just knew the problem. Oh, have you, have you tried just blank, blank, blank? And it's like, duh. Why didn't I think of that? Well, it's because you had a train of thought that was going towards a solution. You couldn't think anything different. That's a, 
That's a microcosm of the way all of us are. We have a thing that we think, and all we can do is validate. And so when we as communicators come in, we're stepping into quicksand, correct? Is that what it looks like? It can, um, especially because one of the things we see the most, and it doesn't matter whether it's in personal or professional environments, anyone who has to communicate to any group of people, by the way, this could be your family at dinner. It doesn't have to be a, you know, in an audience, an auditorium full of you know, 2,000 people. We tend to prepare so much on the information that we hope to transfer to somebody in our communication that all we really subconsciously are, are ready to do is transfer that information. When a great world-class communicator spends as much time understanding what the, he, wants, he or she wants the application to be of the audience receiving the information as they do how I might transfer the information. Because if I understand the audience, again, back to that point we talked about earlier, and I understand what I want them to do differently or the same, more of, then it changes the way that I deliver it. So it's kind of this circular, but it's all about the habits that we formed in how we communicate. And one of the things that I love to challenge people on is we started the company and we still have this. We have it on a plaque in our office. It's, the, it's Romans 12 2. Don't conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first thing I believe Paul's telling us there is, is you got to start to identify the patterns. If I start to think about what are the, you're big on this, right? What is the world telling us we should do when it comes to communication? Well, right now it's telling us we should tell people how great we are on social media or, you know, fill in the blank. They're not patterns that God would tell us make us the best communicators to help affirm other people, mm. to teach them how to walk closer to their purpose. That's the renewing of our mind. Well, how do we renew our mind? we got to understand how the brain works. That's To me, that's Romans 12, 2 in a neuros <laughs> neuroscientific approach. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1, it's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. So let's get into some of your some of your things you're big on. One is pattern recognition. Uh, you've already talked a little bit about yep. that. Uh, how about this one? Neuro coaching. Neuro co what, what what is that? Give us a give us an understanding. So everything goes back to the brain, right? Do you understand the hardwiring of the brain? Do you understand the junk in your brain trunk that prevents you from being a great coach? Are you coming about it from 
your agenda or someone else's agenda. There's a lot of science behind it. But then looking at being a great world-class coach, it's about shared vision. And one of the things we see over and over and over again in any organization, whether it's in business, religious, it doesn't matter. Do we have an organizational vision? Most people have some form of organizational vision. Does the leadership have a leader vision, each leader? And does the leadership of every group and organization within the organization understand each employee's vision? Do they understand it? And if they understand that person's vision and this, you know, really the, the heart behind what they're trying to go, then they align all three of those together. And when you get an organization with aligned shared vision, organizational, leader, employee, and it's aligned, magic happens. Okay, you're making me tired right now. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. You're telling me, you're telling me not only am I supposed to know the vision of Crossroads, my day job, I'm supposed to know the vision myself. I'm supposed to know the vision of everybody who reports to me, and I'm supposed to make a harmonious world where all of those are the same and coexist. Not not the same, but coexist, yes. But but pushing toward the same goal, right? The same vision. Now, here's what here's what's fascinating to me, because I know your head hurts now after that. It does. <laughs> it does. I'm, 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 ready to, I'm ready to quit and go find another job. We, <laughs> Dirt, what's your vision? It's not to clean yourself. No, it's not to clean myself. <laughs> to get as many people listening to your podcast as possible. <laughs> Would you say that's your vision? Seriously? Uh, that, I, that's one of them. Uh, another one is... To uh, what end? Hold on. To what end? You want to you want to get as many people listening to Brian's podcast as possible. To what be, end? Because I think it's it it contains things that will help their life be better. And and why are you passionate about that? Because it's helped my life be better. And where's that come from? Just say Jesus. Jesus it's always Jesus. Jesus. It's always Jesus. 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 <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> no, so, so obviously we're, we you know we're, we we put no, you on fine. the spot. There. Uh, but but come what it really comes down to is is but it, it sounds like a suck up right there. You, no, no, that's that's true though. Is uh, there there are things I have learned from Brian before I worked for Brian that completely changed the way I did family, did my life, uh, thought through the goals for my life, and so I I am passionate for people to read his books, hear his podcast, come to man camp because it was so impactful for me. So he just basically articulated his personal vision. Mm. He has a personal vision to help provide information to the world that helps families and organizations pursue their purpose with more passion. His vehicle happens to be the Aggressive Life podcast. Yeah. So his personal vision is tied to making people's lives better by providing them with information that makes their families better, their organizations better. So you can see right. it's simple, but it, the heart of him is service. Yeah, it is. Dirt's a rare guy. He is rare on, on a bunch bunch of different levels. I, I wonder how that would work if I did that with everybody who's in the building right now. Because like, I think most people, when we think about your vision, Dirt just fortunately came out with it. The vision was just right in line with what the vision of what we're all going after, for, after here. But m- most people, I think, would say something more like, my vision is to have my own book publishing contract someday. My vision is to uh, be a stay-at-home parent. My vision is to start a business uh, that has an IPO, you know, I, and, I, and I would I would respect that, but I'm, that's why I'm going, how would I make those visions that people have or those dreams possibly coincide with everything else? So each of those you just listed are almost goals, okay. objectives. So what's the heart behind it? And so when you ask those second and third layered questions, well, why would you want to do that? Well, because it's going to lead to this. Well, then why is that important to you? Well, because it helps me do this. 
when you get down to the heart of us as humans, there's some universal beliefs that we all hold dear. Most of us, and we know this, most of us are wired to try to make a positive impact on the world around us. The way we do that is through the way our gifts and talents serve other people. So our visions are usually drilled down into some form of that. Where we do it is the vehicle that God has put us in right now to do that, which might be Crossroads Church. It might be the company that you're working at. That's your what, right? This is the back to that, that why. So the personal vision everyone has has to be to make a positive impact on those around me and lead them down a path to closer to their purpose. So if you walked around right now and asked people, in the, we could do it. We could go do it a, a, a remote. These mics, can we, can we take them? Is <laughs> go around and say, what is the ultimate, your ultimate purpose, your life's mission? What is it? Describe it for me. M- most people would struggle. Yeah. Because they've would. never had the exercise. They've never yeah. done the inventory. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that, that's a good challenge. I need to, I need to think about that. That's good. Okay. D- give us another one. Uh, Leading change in a world wired for status quo. What's your stump speech on that? Yeah, the world, as humans, we we view change of any type as risk. And it's, it's all also been demonstrated that humans will change at twice the urgency to avoid a loss as they will to pursue a gain. And so we could go on a whole other episode on that. But the point on it is, is that we like our safety boxes because when we're inside of them, we feel safe. Yeah. And our brains are built for that safety piece. So whenever whenever someone asks me or challenges me to get out of my safety box for any reason, which is, means doing anything differently, by the way, uh, switch hands you brush your teeth with. I'm going to resist it because I like status quo because status quo feels safe. Yet that's the antithesis of this podcast, right? The aggressive life is taking risk, is challenging ourselves, is putting ourselves out there, doing things that don't feel like status quo. But you got to understand the theme of your podcast is in direct opposition to everyone's biology that's listening. Uh, interesting. <laughs> that's, oh, wow. The theme of your podcast is in direct opposition to the biology of everybody who's listening because we don't want to go do something different. We want to justify what we're doing right now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's the fear and the risk of change. Mm. Are you familiar, very familiar with uh, Donald Miller? Yeah, yeah. What? He's got the story brand stuff down in Nashville, I think, right? right? Yeah. Do you know how he brought that out? He did. He had, pro- which was maybe the best-selling book in the history of Christendom. I mean, that sounds really awful. Well, maybe purpose-driven life was. At least best-selling book for several years running, Blue Like Jazz. He came out of college. Right. Did you read that That's book? That's right, yep. It was it's really moving. Right. Yeah, when was that? Back in 19-whatever, 98 or something like that. And he realized he had some of the books after that and they didn't sell. And all of a sudden he'd go, man, I think I think I said about everything I'm going to say here. I got to figure out where he makes some money. So that's when the story brand came out. Have you ever been through a story yeah. brand thing? Uh, no, we've had clients who've gone through it though. The key premise to it, it's another way to look at what you're saying right now, is that the key purpose for survival, aside from avoid being eaten, key purpose is to conserve calories, conserve calories. And we burn more calories thinking than we do walking and running. Absolutely. And that's why in college, when I would study, which would be very rarely, <laughs> I would get very hungry. I mean, I work out, I don't get hungry. But I, when I think and think, I think I get really, really hungry. So his thing is where the human brain is always looking 
for the shortcut to understand something because humans right. brain don't make me work too hard here. Right. I got to conserve calories because we're used to not being able to go just buy something whenever we want. And so therefore, as soon as we understand something or we see a pattern or a politician says something, we like, I got it, got it. I don't need to listen to anybody else anymore. That's an, that's another angle, I think, on what you're saying, right? It is. It's it's one of the greatest features of the brain is its efficiency, and it's also one of the greatest detriments of the brain in today's culture, especially because we'll create these biases, these cognitive biases, these mental cognitive shortcuts, and we'll just assume understanding. We'll move in that direction or we'll resist going in that direction and we'll block out any other information that really would have been helpful. So what Donald's done is he's created a lot of tools to help you create websites that, cause it digitally is a little bit different, the same science, but the, in today's world, the brain is looking for stuff. So when we're flipping through our phones where our brain's processing 20 quadrillion right. calculations per second. Mm. Think about that. On average, 20 quadrillion neuron firing. I didn't, know a number. I didn't a number either. I had to look it up. I'm wow. not a math major. <laughs> and it, it, so if you think about that, we're looking for those shortcuts because the brain is the highest calorie consumptive organ in our body. And because of that efficiency factor, we're looking for those shortcuts and those answers. The problem is most of us, we make rash judgments in those shortcuts and form beliefs without all the information. No one's done that in the last two years, by the way. Hmm created beliefs based on limited information. Right. No, 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 no one's ever done that. No, no. I wonder, back to your storytelling, I wonder if we hooked up all the neurochemical science monitors and tech gadgetry to somebody's brain and we could measure the calories that are being burned or the activity. I wonder what it would show us relative to story and data. My guess is when I'm listening to, listening to a story, I'm not burning calories like I am when you stick me an Excel spreadsheet. It's almost like you've done the research. You're 100% accurate. Oh, you already done the research. Done, I did, we didn't do it at our, at our firm, but it's been done. Wow. And that they, is true. Yes. The Jeez. cognitive switch task processing of the analytical network, it consumes way more calories than receiving the information through visual storytelling. Way more. Wow. I forget the exact uh, ratio, but so it's a lot So the brain basically says, hey, this is fun time here. This is recess. Simple. Just, just Understandable. Stay that's really, wow, that's really, really good. And yet, when we lead with data, whatever it is. There's a, there's a lot of processing and a lot of resistance, and most people will, will tune out because the brain recognizes how much processing power it's putting toward trying to understand yeah. that information. So the pastors that are out there that love you, that follow you, that are listening both right now, them. Both, both of them, them yeah. um, when they get up and they just read straight through Scripture— and they look down and see that six out of the eight people in the front row have drool coming out of the corner of their mouth, it's because the brain is using the analytical network. When they tell the same scripture and they wrap it into the analogy of what's happening or a story and leading up to then the scripture, its relevance, it bypasses the analytical network, activates experientially. I know what to do with it. I can understand it easier. I can apply it more simply. That's why great pastors who teach scripture really well do it by experiential narrative using the scripture as the basis of the story. Why do you think Jesus taught that way? Yeah, right. No, that's a really good point. Jesus didn't give expository sermons. <laughs> no. People get, get really upset with that. The Apostle Paul didn't give expository sermons. If you're really into that, I, which I am, I like listening to him every once in a while, and I like giving them every once in a while, but to be just so dogmatic about it, it's not modeled in the Bible. Maybe it's because these great communicators understood how people received information. Yeah. Uh, well, Jesus clearly did. Paul, I'm not so sure if he'd understood it or not, but he, he clearly knew there was a way to communicate with people in a way that evoked the emotion yeah. attached to what he wanted them to do differently. Right. It doesn't, 
doesn't seem like it says a lot of positive things about us that we're all just emotion junkies. <laughs> I I know I am. I just bought a new I bought a new bike last week and I knew going into it because I've done enough understanding of this and how we think. I I knew going into it like I didn't need to look at any of the tech specs and what the travel was on the suspension, what the horsepower was. Emotionally, I already wanted the motorcycle because virtually any motorcycle in a certain class will do. I tell people, if you're looking to buy a motorcycle, what's the one that gives the emotional charge as you're walking up to put your leg over the saddle? Because you're going to find any data you want to justify it on the back end. But on the front end, just embrace. This is an emotional decision. And I, I say that and I still feel like, man, am I... Am I a lazy human being? Are we, sh- should we fight against this or should we not fight against it? Jeff, is this normal? There's no winning or just, hey, we're all emotional, so let's just embrace it. No, I, I, I'm a big believer. Don't, don't fight against it. It's part of our design. Actually understand it so you can communicate along with it. All right. And, and think about the opposite. If I The motorcycle that you're talking about, if you saw a commercial for that KTM motorcycle. KTM 1290 Adventure R. Oh, so, oh, oh, if I saw oh. a commercial for the KTM 975 Jackknife R, whatever you said, if, if, I, if I saw a commercial for that bike and the whole commercial, it just showed a picture of the bike and then it started scrolling all the features and benefits of the bike, I, I totally tuned out. But the minute I see someone who looks, feels, I can relate with riding that bike in the exact terrain I can see myself in, and then asking me that in just a, that really provocative question of, is this the type of environment and lifestyle that you desire? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course it is. Like, yeah, you're in my limbic system, right? You're attached to the emotion. Then this is the bike for you. By the way, if you want to look at all the specs, go to this website. Yes. Right. Because then I'm just going to go there to validate because I've already yes, right, sucked exactly, in, right? right? So that's it's the same when we communicate to audiences. We have to do the same thing. We have to get them in that experiential place of emotional connectivity before we try to give them data yeah. or information for them to validate, if that makes sense. I was actually incredibly bummed. I, I looked at data yesterday. I had the bike for a while. I'm going, oh, this is an off-road machine. It's unbelievable. It's going to be taking, I'm going to be going over huge rocks and river crossings so much easier than my old run. Like, I'm like really excited about it. And I looked at the data yesterday. It was like this KTM from my fuddy-duddy BMW has 0.3 inches more fork travel. That means it can go over a rock that's 0.3 inches higher. That's how much more capable it is. I was like, oh, <laughs> but I still feel it's awesome. I was going to say, it's right? awesome. and what you do, you probably <laughs> quickly pivoted off of that as a justifier. And then, but, but yeah, but over here, right. the, the torque and the right. horsepower. Right, <laughs> right, right. Oh, I'm, so, I'm such an elementary school child. I am. Okay, one more. You talk about the science of trust, how great leaders communicate and connect. And then we're going to do some, then I'm going to do some real world role, role modeling with you. So talk about this. Okay. So trust. Turns out there's two different types of trust. There's professional trust if you come across as knowledgeable, skillful, capable, uh, you bring some insight that maybe re- is relevant to me, I will find you credible. So if you got up and you started rattling off you know, your time in seminary and you started rattling off you know, Calvinism and the points of this versus that, you, you know, I, I, he's pretty credible. He knows his stuff. So I would trust you on a professional level. On the other side of that equation is personal trust. If you come across as authentic, 
honest, humble, with just the right amount of vulnerability, I can't help it as a human being. I will connect with you and I will start to trust you on a personal level. These are two very different types of trust. And we have to know that when we're communicating to influence people for mutual benefit, both are required. And so, so many people out there who want to be experts at things, they lean to what? Credibility. And I might learn something from you, and I might find that interesting and take it and even do something with it. But we'll never have the depth of relationship that you'll be able to speak into my life on a personal level. And as a leader, you have to be able to establish that personal trust along with your professional trust, the connection along with the credibility, if you really want to go far with people and help them. doesn't matter what sphere of life you're in. By the way, it's the same with your family. Yeah. Let's try to take these learnings and apply them to case scenarios. Just give us some just little bank shots, little layups of, okay, if you're this person going into this communication system, be thinking this and saying this, okay? Okay. Let's start with one that's a little, a little counterintuitive. We have friendships because we're, we're communicating with our friends. When I'm with a friend, what should I be thinking as a communicator when I'm with them? We operate 99% of the time at the unconscious, the, the subconscious level. And because of self-preservation, we're looking through the lens of almost the with them, like what's in, what's in it for me? We can't help it naturally. We have to train ourselves. We have to create new neural pathways that if I'm going to be in a relationship with you and we're going to be friends, when we get together... Am I constantly telling you about my, my day? Yeah. Am I constantly telling you about what I'm going through? Am I constantly sharing, the, again, the, the wrong pronoun, the I, 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 me, me, me? Or am I intentionally saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to meet Brian for coffee. And, and I know that sounds silly, but I am not going to say a thing about me for the first 15 minutes, no matter what happens. I'm going to continue to ask him yes, questions yes, right. and, and uncover and help him discover and do right. those things. So that's one way. You actually, Here's one of the things I ask. How do people know you actually care about what they care about? I ask this question all the time. People are like, well, uh, I don't know. You talk about what they care about? You ask them what they care about? Like, yeah, you actually have to know what they care about. It's no dust. It's like a Geico commercial, right? Everybody yeah, knows right. that. But how do I really know what you care about if I don't really get to know what you care Which about? Which is asking questions. got to be involved. Boy, you're, you're so right. So few of us ask questions. I, I think that might be the success behind the biggest media personality of our era and maybe the greatest conversations of our era, Joe Rogan. <laughs> Say whatever you want about the guy, but... Tens of millions of people. More people listen to him than everybody who watches ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox combined. Right. Combined. And he's curious. He asks questions. And he lets people finish. It's really really remarkable. So that would be an interesting one. I'm going to go in with my friends, and we're going to have a beer or whatever, and I'm not going to talk about myself until they ask me a question. If they don't ask me a question, I'm going to be asking questions and being curious the whole time. That's a good one. No, I'll give you one more even deeper layer to that. Yeah. If you're really good friends with this person, like you know, I've got eight guys in my, in my core group and you know, we, we really do life together. If they ask me a question out of the gate and I'm like, oh crap, now I'm way off my game. I was going to just ask them questions. I was gonna, Tell them. Yeah. See, listen, I'm really working on this. My instinct is I just like to come in high energy. I like to share with you what's going on. And I'm really actually trying to become a better, more empathic friend. So if you don't mind, can we just talk about what's going on in your life for the first 15 minutes? That's a level of vulnerability we talked about. They'd be like, huh, 
okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who this guy is right now, but yeah. I like it. All right. How about if I'm a school teacher? What should I be doing or not doing as a school teacher as a communicator? This is a really good one. And some school teachers, I get it, they're just beat down and exhausted yeah, from yeah. all these little mouth breathers and snot bubblers that they've had to... Breathers. <laughs> they've had to... <laughs> snot to, bubblers, that's a new one. I haven't heard uh, And I get it. My, my, my mom and sister, my, my wife has her master's in education. I totally get it. Um, teachers who understand... I don't want to go too long on this, but Dr. George Land did a study for NASA back in the late 60s. I'll be quick with this. He wanted to find out why some astronauts were amazing, creative, imaginative problem solvers and others were average. He puts them through this assessment. It was amazingly successful. NASA liked it so much, they asked him if he could go give the same assessment to four- and five-year-olds to see if they could identify kind of future astronauts. So he gives this assessment to 1,600 four- and five-year-olds. Any guess what the percentage was of the four and five-year-olds that scored at the top of the creative problem-solving assessment? I would say 99% of 98. them. 98. So he followed them every five years and retested them. It went from 98 to 30 to 12 at 14 and 15. By the time they were adults, only 2%. Wow. And his primary root cause that he found was education, the education system. Think about how we educate our kids today primarily – Start off in kindergarten, first grade, memorization, regurgitation, check the box, pass the test, move on to the next grade. That's how we've educated our, our society and our culture. Which, so we've created these convergent thinkers because we've communicated almost holistically with their analytical network. Now, if you could think about who your favorite teacher was in elementary school, we ask a whole group of people this. Everyone has that like one teacher. Well, Mr. Johnson, he had a toilet in the front of his closet, in the front of the room, and he, he would share stories and used analogies. And he made us, there's always that teacher that does this experiential learning that uses stories and experiences and makes the kids feel what they're learning. That's how you should use the neuroscience to effectively teach our kids. Forget about memorization and regurgitation. Teach the content, concepts through experience, and they'll never forget it, and they'll never forget you. That's good. That's great. All right, how about preachers? What are we doing that we shouldn't be doing? What should we start that we're not doing? I think adopting these principles in a way that, again, evokes the emotion, teaches, don't preach, teach. People don't like to be preached at. They like to be taught to. And the learning and understanding through visual storytelling techniques, through personal experiences, uh, tying things in and an understanding, leading things up to the aha moment, like using those analogies to, to lead them up two moments in, in the message, I think is a powerful way. And some pastors have figured this out. I mean, there's been books written on it, right? Some pastors have figured this out. There's almost like a script and a narrative to the way they teach every Sunday. It works. That's why those flocks, if you will— are drawn to that because there's, yes, there's a spirit component to this. There always has to be, but there's also, um, there's a responsibility, I believe, to the communicator on the platform and the stage to communicate the word in a way that's easy to understand and easy to apply. And I'll finish it with this. A lot of people can bring information. Millions of people can get up and bring information. Fewer people can turn information into inspiration. Fewer still can turn inspiration into activation that leads to application. If you build messages backwards, what's the application? Mm. What moments of activation do I weave into this talk, to this message, to the sermon, to this keynote? How will that? Ins- how will I inspire the emotion of the audience? Now, what's the information I'm going to use? We tend to do it the other, the other way around, and most people stop with information. Yeah, and it never makes its way all the way down to application. Right. 
This has been great. Is there anything that we should be talking about that we're not talking about? I'm sure there's lots. I mean, we could probably do a 10-part series on That's some right. of this stuff, Anything right? you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Uh, to me, I think the, the, the thing that I'm big on right now is back to that identification. What's the pattern of the world in your, wor- in your world right now? Back to Romans 12, too. What are the patterns that you've seen in your life that the world has told you this is the behavior, this is the activity, this is the action? Evaluating patterns right now is big on for me personally. So I'm going through that evaluation, not just as a communicator, as a friend, as a husband, as a leader of a company. What are the patterns in my life that I've adopted because the world has told me that and I've wired my brain, literally wired my brain to believe that's the way that I should behave? I got to identify those and I got to start breaking them. And there's no way to eliminate a habit like that. You have to replace it. You can't just stop say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. You have to replace it by hardwiring some new behavior. So mm-hmm. that Romans 12, 2, what are those patterns in your world? Identify them. What are the ones that are healthy? Let's infor- reinforce those patterns. And what are the ones that are not serving you well? And let's start to create some new habits. And the only way to do that is to understand how to renew your mind. Yeah, right. So that's kind of the, right. the soapbox, if you will, that I'm on right now. Yeah. Man, it's been great getting your insights and your help. All of us, whether we know it or not, are communicators. You might not be paid to be a communicator, and it might not be in your in your job description, but we're constantly with people, and if you're with people, you're going to be communicating. So I'm hoping that today, Jeff, your uh, your insight was really, really good. All of us have something to apply today. Hey, so hey, let's do this. It's called The Aggressive Life because we're going to do this. We're going to actually ask questions of people before we spout off on our own opinions. We're actually going to ask ourselves, is this something valuable? We're going to actually think about our brain and say, am I just trying to shut down data because I want to be lazy and I'm not thinking about long-term effects of what this data might be? Hey, let's take this and let's apply it. It's good stuff. Jeff, how can people get a hold of you? How can they follow your stuff, read more, hear from you? What do they do? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, speaking site is just, just jeffbloomfield.com. Uh, our business site's braintrustgrowth.com, where we coach corporations and businesses on these concepts and a lot of times sales leadership and marketing coaching. Um, so braintrustgrowth.com or jeffbloomfield.com. And I'm on, on social media channels, Instagram, LinkedIn. Follow us there as well. All right, man. Thank you. Very, very good. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second And leave us a rating. Leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.